This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my great pleasure to introduce Maria Hummel. Maria and I have known each other for 19 years. I know. Um, we met at UNC Greensboro in the MFA program where we sat on a lot of porches and watched a lot of dogs and drank a lot of whiskey and some wine called Dos Toros. Do you remember that? Isn't it? Yeah, right. Oh, conchi door. Conchi, right. <laughs> and sometimes participated in questionable behavior. I'll just say that somewhere on the Greensboro campus is painted not free Mumia, but free Maria. <laughs> um, we then proceeded to unintentionally and fortuitously follow each other across the country, first to Los Angeles and then to the Bay Area, where we live mirrored lives. She teaches at Stanford, I teach at Cal. She's married with two boys. I'm married with two girls. She's a prol- prolific author of three books and a number of published essays. I have one book. <laughs> Maria's first book, Wilderness Run, is a novel that takes place in Vermont during the Civil War. The LA Times called it a visceral recreation of inept skirmishes, blood-soaked field hospitals, and dysentery-ridden convales- convalescent camps. But it's also a fascinating occasion of the home front where Belle Lindsay and adolescent Vermont blue stocking amped up on abolitionist rhetoric writes dutiful letters to her beloved soldier cousin Lawrence. Hummel shows us how the war not only wreaks irrevocable changes upon the nation but all upon those precious devoted cousins too. Her second book a collection of poetry won the 2013 APR Honickman is that how you say it? First prize first book prize House and Fire details a mother's love song to her stricken young son, written over the years of his hospitalizations for an acute immune disorder. About these poems, Stuart DeShell wrote, these intricately structured, deeply moving alchemical poems transform sorrow into something beautiful and true. Here is a young poet in full command of her gifts. I cannot think of a more powerful first book. Her latest book, Motherland, is about the Kappas family. The father, Frank, is a surgeon drafted into military service during World War II. After losing his wife and childbirth, he marries a young woman, Liesel, who must look after the baby and his two grieving sons while he is away at war. Liesel tries to keep the children safe and fed, but one child begins to mentally unravel, and Liesel must discover the source of the boy's illness or lose him forever to Hadamar, the infamous hospital for unfit children. When looking for blurbs to help introduce a novel, I came across this from Jessamine Ward. In stunning, pitch-perfect prose, Maria Hummel gives us a deeply moving portrait of lives on the wrong side of history. This isn't just another World War II novel. It's a spectacular story about what it means to love and hope in the most difficult times. This is precisely my experience of this compelling novel. As a Jew, I found Maria's ability to make us both sympathize and empathize with those on the wrong side of history extraordinary. And as a writer, I found her ability to write such complex, three-dimensional, and compelling characters enviable. As well, the backstory to Maria's decision to write this novel is fascinating, but I'll let her share that with you. Please join me in welcoming Maria Hummel. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, 
Selma is in the news, Selma, Alabama. Ha, ha, raise your hand have you, if you've seen the movie or heard of the movie. Uh, okay, at least uh, most everyone is, has heard of it. And Selma's in the news partly because it's 50 years since the marchers, uh, peaceful marchers, crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge and were beaten by policemen on horseback with billy clubs and bull whips and electrical cords and tear gas. And this event-making national news catalyzed President Johnson to sign the Voter Registration Act. So many of us, most of us, know this history. If you haven't seen the movie, you may have seen the hazy photographs of the men in uniform and the people crippled and, and hiding their faces. We know about the leaders, we know about the marchers, the cops, and the, and the president. But here's a question. What do you think happened to those marchers who were so injured on that day? Where did they go? In the 1960s segregated South, where most blacks were turned away routinely from white hospitals and had to resort to folk doctors for treatment. Elsewhere in the South, protests had claimed lives, but not Bloody Sunday. The answer to that question, why, um, intersects with my own family history. In the 1920s, a young German named Isabel Schmitz-Dumont came to this country and somehow miraculously got a medical degree from the Philadelphia School of Medicine. And she was working in Philly at a Catholic mission when she met another European, an outgoing Dutch nurse named Joan Mulder, and they decided together that they were going to go to Africa and become missionaries. And while they were public in discussing these plans, the Archbishop of Alabama, who knew of their talents and their, um, and their energy, said, why go to Africa? Why don't you come here? We need you. Um, and so they, they did. In the 1940s, they uh, started a clinic in Sullivan's Alley in Selma, Alabama, and they treated anybody who needed it. And they took payment in the form of chickens and vegetables, and they went out at night you know, by candlelight, essentially, and delivered babies in the community. And then together with the local Catholic mission, the clinic that they had expanded um, into a series of strung-together sh shacks uh, into a makeshift hospital. And then by the 60s, it actually, 1960s, it bloomed into a state-of-the-art medical facility with a practicing surgery that served all patients and mostly black patients without question. Isabel was the chief surgeon and... Joan was the leader on a nursing staff the day that those wounded marchers poured in, and even John Lewis, now a renowned public figure who suffered severe head trauma from being beaten that day, recovered in their care. We know that without the violent response of Sheriff Clark, Selma's Bloody Sunday would have never made national news. But without the readiness and capability of the Good Samaritan, the day's casualties might have all raised the already painful cost of the movement to an unbearable degree. And I, I was 12 when my great aunt, Isabel, 
died and was buried in Selma's African American Cemetery. Joan died a year later and was buried beside her. And not very long after, I realized I wanted to be a writer, and I was sure that someday I might tell Isabel's story. But Isabel had two sisters uh, who stayed in their native Germany, and one of them, Greta, in 1942, answered an ad in a newspaper posted by a widower with three young children looking for a new wife. Um, He was a doctor, and uh, he was my grandfather, and the eldest of those three boys was my father. His mother had died Um, His biological mother had died in the childbirth of his youngest brother. And Greta married into the family, and she basically raised the boys single-handedly for several years while my grandfather was deployed to an army hospital and later ended up in a POW camp. And as you, if you have looked at all into what Motherland is about, um, you know that I ended up writing about Greta, and not Isabel. I ended up writing about the sister on the wrong side of history. Not Isabel, this heroine with this active and fascinating life, but about Greta, an at-home mother who did nothing to resist the murderous regime in which she lived. Why would I choose Greta over Isabel? Well, the answer is I didn't choose her. When I set aside writing about Isabel, because I couldn't find the right angle and the right enough information, really, to make a whole nonfiction book. I tried writing a novel about Rudolf, my grandfather, and when I struggled with him, I added another man to my story, an anesthesiologist who had the uncanny ability of making my gut twist every time he did anything in scene because he wasn't actually supposed to exist. He was a stand-in, for my psyche's resistance about making a whole novel about a fairly ordinary but courageous woman who also averts her eyes to her country's evil. The sister on the wrong side of history, whenever I got to writing through the eyes of my character, Liesel, who you'll hear um, chapters with her in, in this book, I couldn't stop. And when I became a mother and my infant son fell ill for several years, I saw her emerge in the draft as the reason the novel existed at all. Through Liesel, I could explore my own feelings about motherhood, its fierceness, its power, its blindness, and my own troubled legacy about being the granddaughter of Mitläufer, citizens who went along with Nazism, reaping its benefits and and later its consequences. Which leads me to this possibly controversial observation that I'd like to throw out there for afterwards if you have any questions, which is, what if our characters aren't ultimately people at all, but the best answers we have to the hardest questions we have about being human? I'm not sure if I know the answer, so I'd love to hear your point of view. But there's a, and there's a lot more to the historical and personal connections to the story. But I want you to read. I want to, to read you a section of Liesel's story. It's 150 pages into the book, so I have to give you a little background. Now, anyone who has ever raised small children knows how overloaded you can become. And if you have never raised small children, um, 
or don't know, here's an analogy. Imagine it's exam week. You have three papers and, and three uh, exams due, and you get mono, and then somebody walks into your dorm room randomly and lights your laptop on fire, and that is basically what one day is like with a two-year-old. Um, but Liesl's got an especially large load of overload. Um, she's raising these kids on her own because um, her husband is, is deployed at this army hospital, and he's also been told that he could have an opportunity to really advance his surgical career in Berlin. Um, and so she doesn't want to tell him, partly because she doesn't want him to der- deter him from this career advancement, and partly because she's embarrassed or ashamed, I guess. Um, she doesn't want to tell him that, number two, her middle son, Ani, is mysteriously ill, um, he's he's clumsy and he's having trouble eating, and he's also having anxiety that borders on the hallucinatory. And number three, the people in the neighborhood don't really like her because they think she's socially beneath her husband. And number four, her oldest friend Uta is staying with her, and Uta is pregnant and hiding from uh, the high up Nazi in Berlin who was her lover because she doesn't want to keep the baby. And number. Um, whatever number I'm at, number five, um, the housing office has just assigned two new refugee families to move into their house, um, which was fairly common towards the end of the war and happened in, in, in my family that uh, basically everybody ended up um, giving housing to, to the people streaming in from the east. So I'm going to start with the arrival of the new neighbors. Although Liesel tried to rein in her expectations for the new neighbors, she felt predisposed to to prefer the Dillmans, a humble family of miners from Silesia. They were already clear in her mind. According to the papers from the housing office, the wife was young, and her children had simple names like Otto and Gertrude. Their clothes would be threadbare, their teeth crooked and gapped, but their cheeks ruddy, full of health. They would go to bed early like good country people and rise with the dawn. The Vinters, by contrast, hailed from a city in East Prussia that had a squalid reputation, and the children had grand, unpronounceable names like Gieselhair and Dankwart. Furthermore, they appeared to be almost all teenage boys and capable, Liesel thought, of supporting their mother so she shouldn't have to rely on strangers to take them in. The Vinter family business was cleaning and repairing typewriters, which meant they would stink up the house with ink and solvent and the noise, clattering keys, dings, rattles, clunks. How would Jorgen ever nap? Liesel worked to set her prejudices aside as 11 o'clock passed. The families were supposed to arrive at noon with the man from the housing office. Ani and Hans were already stuffed into starched shirts, and Jorgen wrapped in his best jumper. They played miserably under, under her vigilant watch. Even Uta had risen to the occasion and curled her hair, but it was still too long and hung around her neck instead of cheeks. She wore a look of amused disdain as Liesel bustled upstairs and downstairs, checking the rooms one last time. They sparkled speckless and fragrant with the leathery smell of polish that Liesel had applied herself until long after midnight. Finally, the doorbell rang. 
The two families flooded through the threshold in no particular order, so it was hard to tell a Vinter from a Dillman or a Dillman from a Vinter, although one family seemed, as a rule, to have darker hair. Preceding them up the railing was a combined odor of wood smoke and urine and sour milk. How long had it been since they'd had a proper bath or sleep? Their clothes appeared pasted onto their bodies. The girls looked like shabby dolls stuffed into the wrong outfits. The boys' pants were as short as knickers. They didn't stop still for proper introductions, either. The two mothers craned past Liesel to see the rooms beyond, and the kids burst through to take the stairs and check things out for themselves. Their steps made a thunder, and their hands smudged clouds onto the polished rail. Within moments, all shine was gone. Dillman's upstairs, Vinter's downstairs, a new man from the housing office said. He stood behind the families holding a sheaf of papers. He had a crisp uniform and clean, trimmed fingernails as if he too had dressed up for the occasion. Dillman's upstairs, Vinter's downstairs, but the kids didn't listen. They ran pell-mell into every room, and Hans leapt after them, calling out, Wait, wait! Ani followed his brother, clinging clinging to the rail. The jerky, weak way he moved caught one mother's eyes. Children, the mother said, reaching for the boys who are already too far away. He's not contagious, Liesel said loudly, her cheeks burning. He's not contagious at all. And then they were all looking at Ani, the kids and the mothers and the government official, and she saw how different he seemed from the other children. Their limbs were made of muscle and sinew, their dirt-smudged faces mobile and full of curiosity. Ani gave them a smile, his usual innocent, hopeful smile, upper teeth poking over his lip, but the blue pallor of his skin distorted it and made it look sad and hungry. This is my house, he said, his head flicking once, twice, three times to the right, his eyes blinking rapidly. For a moment, the entire stairwell fell silent, as the boy twitched and jerked. Dillman. The name appeared above the campuses within two days of the tenant's arrival. The little wooden slat inked in a neat childish hand was the only thing small and neat about the clan, which spilled out of its third-floor rooms in, into the wash kitchen at all hours. The four girls, the lone boy Otto was serving in the Ukraine, scattered their ribbons and shrill giggles everywhere. They had somehow managed to procure a record player and played their two albums over and over, dancing their big clomping feet across the floor. Of all of them, only the second oldest, Frida, seemed genuinely kind in a downcast sort of way. She was also the prettiest, having escaped the freckles and frizzy brown heads of the rest of the Dillmans. For this, her sisters treated her with a mix of reverence and scorn. Frau Dillman trotted out, elaborately, almost joyously polite, the first week of their habitation on Hubertstrasse's sex. She sang out their praises, her praises for the rooms, the view, the neighborhood, But when Liesel confronted her regarding the nightly wail of the record player, Frau Dillman's shoulders grew as rigid as a cornered cat's. After Liesel stopped her a second time to confer over the soggy underthings left strewn about the wash kitchen, Frau Dillman's eyes began to blink hard whenever they crossed paths. Overrun and overplucked was Uta's comment when Liesel complained about her new neighbor's touchiness. She's too tired to get along. This was the new Uta, 
glazed and contented by her pregnancy. Can't you side with me for once, Liesel retorted. I am siding with you. You can't change her, so just let her alone. So Liesel tried to leave Frau Dillman alone, even when the woman spoke in a voice laced with resentment about the broken heaters in their rooms. Perhaps someone from the housing office can come, Liesel had said, and made the request, but no one came. Likewise, the employment office had never come through with a new housekeeper, and the local Wehrmacht office could not get any more packages to Frank. It was as if the country were slowly becoming paralyzed. Soon they would all stop moving one by one until Hans and Annie froze in their Luftwaffe games and the Dillman girls gate in their last dance step. But not Frau Winter. Frau Winter was up all day and night ready to talk. She burst from her apartment at the slightest creak of the steps, her black old-fashioned widow's weeds swirling about her. Her fierce face looked as if it had been molded by glaciers, a terrain of deep crevices with two frigid pools for eyes. Frau Winter never smiled. Her laugh was a throttled rasp. But there was something intangibly confident and pleased about her, as if she had been waiting all her days for life to turn so brutal, and now that it had, she had the satisfaction of being prepared. Her teenage sons were never home, so she cornered Liesel. Each of her stories was a swinging fist. When they evacuated East Prussia, her eldest daughter was carrying her infant on a pillow covered in a blanket. They had to muscle and shove to get on the train. They had to jam in with hundreds of others so tight it was as if they were hanging by their shoulders, like we were the clothes in a wardrobe, Frau Winter said in her sonorous, imperfect German. It wasn't until the next station that her daughter realized that the pillow was empty. Her baby had fallen somewhere. And then, my Hilda took herself, Frau Winter said, lunging forward as if tackling someone invisible in front of her. It took Liesel a moment to realize the girl had thrown in herself in front of a train or out of the train. She wasn't sure which. She didn't want to know. And then Friedrich, Frau Winter had shaken her head. We had to get off the train to look for Hilda, and we could not get another one, so we walked for days, and he just collapsed. There was no doctor. Your husband is a doctor? Yes, so maybe he would know what happened when a man collapses like that and says his chest is too tight to breathe. Maybe heart attack, but what could we do but keep walking? When Liesel blinked, her eyelids felt too dry. She handed Frau Winter the bucket of meager cleaning supplies she'd scrounged for her, a box of soap flakes, a brush, a pile of rags, and fled. Frau Winter's glittering grief undid her. It made her fear the worst. Frank trapped in a besieged Berlin and Ani. Liesel had taken him to Dr. Becker, who sent him to the hospital clinic to have his blood tested, and now they were waiting through four teeth-gritting days for the results. Ani was gaining weight again, but the Dillmans and their constant ruckus woke him at night, crying out from nightmares. They keep falling on me, Mutti. He clutched his belly in pain. Sometimes he staggered as if someone invisible had whacked him from behind. She had the same conversation with him over and over. Did you eat something funny? Something you ate made you sick. Nothing. You must have eaten something. I didn't eat anything. Ani, tell the truth to me. It was Fräulein Müller's cooking muddy, and he grimaced and blinked. Anyway, I'm getting better now. After the boys were in bed, Liesel posited various theories aloud to Uta. Ani had worms. Ani had eaten some poisonous mushrooms in the cellar. Write to the boy's father, said Uta. He knows him best. 
but Liesel still hadn't. She couldn't, at least not until the blood test results. Frank had just finished a miracle surgery on his old classmate. He needed to go to Berlin now to become the surgeon he was meant to be. And besides, she didn't want Frank to think she couldn't care for the children, children to send them away to his sister or to one of Herr Geis's contacts in the country. The baby was learning to walk, but not to anyone, just to her. Jürgen slammed his chest into her and hugged her with all his trembling strength. If she left the house without him, he cried. He was too big for his cradle, so she made a pallet on the study floor for them both, and all night he pressed his warm body into her spine and clutched her hair. He was the only reason she could sleep at all. Did Anselm admit to eating anything, Dr. Becker said after he closed his office door, leaving Ani alone in the examining room. They had been inside together for nearly half an hour without her, their murmuring too dis- indistinct to catch any words. No. Did he tell you? She didn't mean to sound so defensive. He regarded her for a moment and then nodded. He didn't tell me, but his blood showed a high concentration of lead, he said. Lead, Liesel repeated faintly. The word conjured images of pipes, lead pipes, but the pipes in Frank's house were made of copper. Enough to cause motor and cognitive damage, said the doctor, too soon to say if it's irreversible. Then he lit a cigarette, took a few puffs, and stubbed it out while she summoned a response. Could the test be wrong? Liesel said, her mind sorting through all the possible objects in their house. Hans's toy soldiers? Was he eating them? Unlikely. The doctor shoved his hands in his coat pockets. I haven't seen these exact symptoms before, but they're not atypical for lead poisoning. It would also explain the fatigue, the loss of appetite. Poisoning. The word didn't belong to Ani, not dear Ani, who'd fed his baby brother his bottle that morning and asked, why doesn't milk taste like grass? A sudden patience descended over Liesel, but I don't understand why he would eat something like that. She said slowly, he's not a baby. He knows what he's putting in his mouth. Dr. Becker lit another cigarette. Exactly why this is so troubling, he said, very troubling. All through Dr. Becker's house call, she'd resented him, even though he had been kind. Here in the office, it was the opposite. His clean, soapy smell had the acid tang of lye, and his brown eyes looked cold. With a shock, she recognized the expression in them. He wasn't sympathizing with her anymore. He blamed her. Can't we give him anything, a medicine? There is a chelating agent that would bind to the lead and help him excrete the metal, the doctor said, but it's risky to use with children. He explained that the agent could cause fever, abdominal pain, even a coma if Ani took too much. A proper diet and no more exposure to lead would be safer, and then if Liesel cut him off, I give him a proper diet. The doctor cleared his throat. This is a serious case. He's worse than I saw him last. In addition, his recurrent nightmares appear to be infringing now on his conscious mind. He hears voices that aren't there and experiences false sensations. He may need further examination. He pulled out a form, scribbling on it. He's a good boy, Liesel said. She heard a soft thump in the room, in the other room, and wondered if Ani could hear them. The doctor kept scribbling. He did not look up as he spoke. Best case scenario, he stops consuming lead now, and the symptoms subside. Worst case, the effects are permanent. The cognitive damage can be irreversible. He set the pen down. What are you writing? Liesel asked. 
If his lead levels don't go down in two weeks, I am filling out a form that requires you to take him to an institution for psychiatric evaluation and potential admission. She gaped at him. She couldn't fasten on his meaning. It's my legal obligation, Frau Kappas. Such cases are best handled by professionals. His fingers stroked the form. I had some clinical training ten years ago at a very fine asylum in Kiedrich, where the patients are well cared for, and if Anselm's case gets more serious, he can go on to Hadamar. Hadamar. She knew that name. Liesel reached for the form. Dr. Becker tucked the paper in a folder out of reach. He leaned back in his chair, regarding her with all the weight of his medical degrees pulling down at the walls, heavy and glassy. She rubbed her cheeks with her hands, trying to find the right response. For the safety of our fellow citizens, he said. Why would you want to do this to him? What do you have to gain? She interrupted, her voice finally coming to her. The doctor looked surprised by her question. As I said, this is simply standard medical procedure, Frau Kappas. Our system places the decision about a patient's illness in the hands of those most qualified to make it. My husband's a doctor, she protested. My husband is qualified. Ah, your husband, he said, his eyes holding hers. I'd like to hear his opinion. I'll write to him promptly. He picked up his pen again. What's the address? I'll write to him, and he'll contact you. Good day, Herr Doctor, she said. As she rose, she saw the street below. For a moment, the pedestrians all looked alike, all stalled in their places, gray coat, gray coat, gray coat, as if someone had planted them there. By the time her mouth opened to call for Ani, the people were moving again, but she couldn't dislodge the image from her mind. Liesel held Ani's hand tight as they crossed the street. His fingers had lost their softness. They were just sinew and bone now, and she hated the cold feel of them. She wanted to stop right where she was and breathe on them until they warmed, until the boy plumped to his old healthy self again. Terms from the doctor visit snagged in her mind. Lead poisoning. It dredged up memories of reading about lead-poisoned Romans slaughtering their own families, chelating agent. It sounded like something cold and final. Surely there was some other medicine they could give to children. Ani was a scared, grieving little boy. She'd seen children with with all sorts of silly tics and imaginary friends. Could Ani really be irreversibly ill? Hadamar. Where are we going? Ani stumbled after her, and for a brief flash, she pictured him in institutional pajamas, skinny and wild-eyed, alone on a metal bed. In here, she said, towing him toward the telegraph office, just be quiet for a minute. She knew the message she had to write, and she wrote it quickly, confirmed it, and paid with a clatter of fennigs. She nearly forgot to take her change until the clerk cleared his throat. She spun away, flooded with nerve. There, she had done it. Muti, what's wrong? Ani asked as they re-entered the street. Just keep walking, she said. We'll talk about this when we get home. What's wrong with me? He whispered. His face tilted up at her, his expression lost and spinning. She stopped then and lifted him all the way up into her arms. He was too old to be hugged that way, and he sagged as his legs clumsily found their way to either side of her waist. She pressed him close anyway, tucking his head into her shoulder. 
People turned to stare. She didn't look at them, but from the corner of her eye, they took on familiar shapes. An elderly neighbor from Hubertstrasse, Marta, the housekeeper, Herr Geis, they were all watching her, judging, tensing, ready to report. A feeling like a laugh spread through her chest. Nothing's wrong, she whispered, but Ani was letting go. He fell to the street until his toes touched, and then he pushed away from her. I want to go home, he said, pointing to the streetcar tracks. Can I ride on the outside today? No, said Liesel, alarmed. She smoothed her rumpled skirt. What had just possessed her? She looked up to Dr. Becker's window and saw him watching her. Please, said Ani. I'll be careful. Please, please, please. He started to flick his head to the right. She lowered her voice and cupped his cheeks. His head jerked against her palms. Not today. It's not safe. He jerked again. Another day, please? All right. Another day, she agreed, wanting to hold him again. Muti, let go, he said. I think I'm going to stop there um, to see if because it looks by my clock that we're getting to about quarter of. So um, any questions or anything um, you'd like to know about the book or historical fiction or um, the questions? Yeah. Is it normal to get to uh, what you were talking on before you read to the question of why and how she chose to be more, like, uh, unreliable, um, cultural memory and illness. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, this was a huge question in writing this book, and I, I really did honestly wrestle with it on every page. But the question of, um, and, I, and I talk about it a little bit in the acknowledgments as well, but the whenever I think, Anybody writes about Germans during that time. The question of what did they know, when did they know it, how did they respond is, I think, the dominant one. Um, and I spent many drafts of this book placing the Holocaust more on screen than it is ultimately um, here. And every time I did, um, I felt like hindsight was making me do that. Um, more than what felt palpable to me at the time, that the the question of this book, in a large part, um, revolves around people who did avert their eyes. And so their consciousness of the Holocaust is something that they're pushing away at all times, not drawing into their experience. And so it does happen in this book, there are implications of and moments where they don't. Um, and for example, Frank works um, in a hospital in Weimar. Weimar was not far from Buchenwald. Um, my grandfather was also at this hospital in Weimar, and he claims that, or he claimed when, when my father asked him about it, that a separate set of doctors and, and staff, it was SS doctors and SS staff, um, worked in those camps, and they were different from the army doctors. So they had vague ideas that there were there was a political prisoner camp over there, but they didn't really know 
And if they had investigated, they could have found out what was going on, but they chose not to. And but how, but how the novel, the knowing, comes to be like, they watch movies? Or oh, how did they find out? I mean, not, not that they found out. Everybody found out, and everybody ignores it for a lot of reasons it's known. Mm-hmm. People know things and ignore it, like yeah. they are they're discussing in later, but... But how in the book it comes to be that they know but do not know? Right. Um, well, it, that was an example, I think, where he, he finds out in a scene that um, uh, one of the, the patient, one of the actually, um, there's a patient that he's treating who was a guard um, or some kind of clinician or something at Buchenwald, and he says, oh, the doctors are giving typhus to, the, to, to test it out, to try to make a vaccine. So they're giving people typhus to basically um, uh, to create a vaccine, which is uh, horrifying for anybody to hear, but particularly a doctor who treats typhus patients or knows what typhus does to people. And, and he's upset about it, and he brings it up to his friend, and his friend says, oh, no, you know, they wouldn't be doing that because why would, you know, what would be the point in infecting your labor force, essentially? And his superior basically kind of says, we know this rumor is circulating, but it's not true, and 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 makes this implication to Frank that if he doesn't, um, if he chooses to pursue it, then a a favor that Frank wants for a a patient of his won't happen. And so he drops it. Um, In Liesl's case, uh, she's fairly... Uh, she knows the, the, the situation with Hadamar makes her more acutely aware of um, how the Holocaust extended way beyond the Jews and into um, anybody who had anything that was different. So this was an um, a institution that basically euthanized uh, mentally ill patients. Um, so in her case, the, the awareness comes more through that but there's an interrogation scene at the end of the novel with an American, um, and he is just disgusted with her and with all these wives that he's interviewing and how little they know. And it's at that moment that I think she really comes to kind of a crippling understanding of how in her urge to protect and safeguard and and watch over the innocence of her children, she also exposed them to... Uh, parents' generation, including herself, that that let something happen um, that would haunt her, her, those children all their lives. Another question? That was kind of a big one. So. <laughs> well, going back to the question that you asked us at the beginning of the hour, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious about what you've thought about that. You're just, will you repeat the question? Yeah, well, because it's, I mean, we try so hard to make people on the page. So when, it, when I say, oh, what if these pe- characters are not people at all, I don't mean necessarily that ca- characters shouldn't feel be three-dimensional and that sort of thing. But I'm thinking that when you write a character, you're always omitting something. You're always omitting a lot of stuff. In order to, to, 
I guess, siphon the energy of a human life into um, the needs of the novel, right? So uh, people's lives, I mean, I teach nonfiction a lot. People's lives are so messy, and we always have this debate and kind of exercise over the course of the class where people say, oh, I was writing about my mother, but I wasn't really faithful to everything about her. I was just faithful to this one part of her story that made sense for my essay. And But I think that's the same thing that happens with fiction, right? You, you create a character, but they, they do in some ways are created to fulfill questions that you can't answer. Um, and so they can't be... A, as, I mean, I, if, if characters are three-dimensional, I think people are like hundred-dimensional or something, you know what I mean? Like living human beings, so we can't, um, we can't create those on the page, I don't think. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Any opinions? Yeah. Yeah, no, seven different things when you do a character in order to be not not ordinary actress. Mm-hmm. I remember me thinking, but where where about are the seven thousand other characters that are happening? Right. You know, if you do seven, you lose all the others. You better don't do seven of B. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe then the later will come in. Or yeah. In our Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, it's just like people say, how many plots do this? People say there's only like a certain amount of plots, like a stranger comes to town and, you know, and, the, and the everything's some variation of it. But of course everything isn't. There's there's enormous amount of nuance. And um, so I'm, I'm just thinking, I, I, I thought of this because over the course of writing this book, I kept going back to this woman and I think I went back to this woman because it was the lens of motherhood and illness in particular were ones through which I could suddenly see a way to talk about the great troubling ambiguous dark questions of that period in history and um, and connect to it in a way that drew out experiences that I had um so you know it wasn't it isn't my father's childhood you know it's some version although he um the the middle son in the family and his family didn't fall ill but my father lost his hand while Greta was taking care of him in a in an accident in a um, factory um, that his uncle owned and so she did I think go through quite a bit of feelings of guilt and, and fear about how she was doing taking care of these children. Yeah. So now that you've um, kind of explored this story and this part of your family history, do you see yourself never going after the original inspiration of your history? I don't know. I feel like I haven't found that third, you know how... Um, I think if I do Isabel's story, it will probably be with nonfiction and not fiction because with these remarkable moments, like it feels worth putting in nonfiction so people know it's actually true. Um, but I, um, I don't know that uh, when you talk about um, 
in nonfiction, sometimes we talk about braids, you know, like Notes of a Native Son is a classic braid essay in which he he talks about the death of his father, the birth of his father's youngest child, and the, and the race riots in Harlem, and, and he's always alternating between one of those three um, strands. And, and I feel like I haven't found the third part of the braid for her story, and it will come at some point, but it, it just hasn't yet. And, of course, I really wanted to go to the... Um, 50th anniversary march, but I think they are going to be just deluged with, I mean, I also have small children, so it's hard, but I think they'll, especially with what happened with in Ferguson and, and continues to happen um, with um, African Americans and the, and the police in our country, I, I think that this Alma march is just going to be enormous this for the 50th anniversary, so I can't see a way to get there, but but yeah, I'd like to I'm glad I could just tell a little bit to you, you know, and just share it because I, I it's I think an, an interesting story. Talk about your research process. What did you do? Yeah, um, well, there there is a, another facet to this family history that I didn't reveal, which is that my grandfather, when he, so he did desert the army. Uh, Weimar because he was worried about the Russian army coming in and he would get stuck on the Russian side. Um, so he deserted, um, and, uh, and when he deserted, he um, stopped uh, in, uh, and stayed in this um, one family's house in, in Turingen, and he put a packet of, of the letters that his wife, his new wife, had written to him in a wall in an attic, and they were found 50 years later by a couple renovating the house, and my uncle still lives in the house where my dad grew up, and so they found him and said, "Are you related to this Rudolf Hummel? And and can you um, do you want these?" And so we got these letters that were this new wife's, you know, letters to her husband, um, and those I think helped me get the set, the spirit of um, of of Liesel, um, you know, that sort of hopeful, <laughs> fearful, totally overwhelmed. Um, I don't know if we're, I don't even know if I love you yet kind of letters, you know, um, between them. And then I also, you know, Google, historical fiction has been, I think, revolutionized by internet research now. You can find anything. You can find, you know, I could find uh, Steven Spielberg gave a lot of money for a a film archive of World War II um, movies, Uh, not just like, I don't mean like... I mean, like, aerial footage and those kinds of movies, not not cinema-type movies. So you can find those and see what the landscape looked like. You can find... I wanted to find out what a Mutterkreuz looked like one time, which is uh, the cross that that German women would wear if they had six or more children. Well, of course, somebody is selling these on eBay. So you can see what they look like, and that really helps um, with the writing. Um, and then I interviewed my father extensively, and he interviewed his brothers, and my father drew diagrams of the house. But the thing that probably helped me actually the most was that the house in which much of this book is set is very like the house where my father grew up and where I spent childhood summers. Um, and so I have child memories of this place, and that makes stuff so easy to access, you know, and make archetypal or, or make make the setting rich, I think. So I, I was able to set the story in a place I knew very well, um, and that really helped. 
Yeah. Anyone else? Oh, yeah. Have you read anything uh, recently that you particularly enjoyed that you recommend to I liked, um, I just read a hologram for the King, Dave Eggers uh, novel. I loved it. I thought it was really, it has a kind of a parable-like clarity to it. It's really engaging. It speaks to, uh, you know, the way in which we've farmed out the making of things in our society overseas and, and what that really means, I think. Um, yeah, so I really, that was a great recent novel that I read. How about you? Okay. Any anyone else? That part about her being so dedicated to the chief, but on the other side, not knowing the security if she loves or not loving him yet—is that in the book? Yeah, I mean, I I have them having an attraction that grow is growing into love when he leaves, um, but you know. How much could you really know somebody? They didn't know each other that long before he had to leave. And then they have this enormous... Um, you know, what's really kind of marvelous, too, about her and her sister's stories is that she, you know, she raised... My father really revered her and, and loved her very much uh, and, and um, loved Greta. And uh, Isabel and Joan, who were not very politically radical during this, um, during the Selma marches, they, I think, felt troubled by how it might tear asunder the work that they had done because the anger was so ferocious. Um, and, um, but afterwards, they began to adopt young black men, young black boys who for one reason or another, didn't have homes um, into their house. And then they lost a lot of friends because of that, because it was considered so... I mean, two white women raising young black men in the 1960s in Alabama, you know, you can just see see how um, people were, you know, firing guns over their house and stuff like that. And I think they really got catalyzed by what happened to make that decision. Um, and so they also, Isabel also raised adopted boys, you know, and also um, gave to who needed it. And um, maybe that ultimately will be some kind of connection that I can make between their stories. Yeah. I have just started reading Time of Yes by Patrick Lee Uh-huh. Which is, he, he walks from Holland to Constantinople in Oh, wow. I, I haven't read it. No, I'll write it down. He goes through Germany just uh, after Hitler's been elected and so I just wondered if you read it because it is so evocative of Germany, where people, some people love Hitler, some people love Hitler, and staying people hearing what people Yeah, no, I haven't, but I'll, I'll check it out. It sounds great. Um, I loved, uh, for nonfiction, I mean, there were some memoirs. There was a memoir by a guy who actually ended up at Cal State Hayward named Winfried Weiss who uh, wrote a, Nazi, a book called A Nazi Childhood and then later a memoir about AIDS. And he was a, he was a real poet, and, and the, the memoir about his childhood really um, crept into the book in different ways. Um, also, Curzio Malaparte's Caput, I think, which is set during... It's a novel that reads like a very weird travel memoir, <laughs> um, you know, crept in. And, and then there were... Um, 
probably for the voices and lives of the women, there was a oral history book called Frauen by Alison Owings that's really, really great, where she just interviewed all women who would have been adult age during the time of Hitler and talked to them about their experiences. And there was a huge range from a former concentration camp guard to a farmer's wife to, you know, all, all over the place. And that was really good. Yeah. I'm just curious, do you continue to write poetry while you're working on a novel? I try. Um, I've, I've not been writing a lot of poetry in the last six months, but before that I was. Um, you know, I have a teaching job, the kids, and then, like, it's just hard to do everything. But I'm hoping, I have some poems that are, I feel like are in there, and they just haven't, I, I have been really focused on a new novel. And uh, and it's a very strong first-person voice, and I just feel like she just wants to keep talking. So I'm just trying to get down, like, find the time to sit down and listen to her, basically. Yeah, it's really different. Um, it is set... I used to work at the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A., MOCA, and uh, it, this novel is set in the L.A. art world um, on the night... On the opening night of this artist gala, she disappears, and um, the story follows the seven days afterwards, um, and, and what happened to her. Yeah. Okay. What drew you to a historical fiction approach instead of more biographical? What are you thinking about for Can you? Yeah, I didn't quite understand it. Um, so you said that with um, your great aunt, you, if you were to write something, it probably wouldn't be just purely historical fiction, it mm-hmm. would be more biographical mm-hmm. almost. What um, drew you to doing a historical fiction approach to this oh, novel yes. instead of a biographical? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I really wanted as best I could to inhabit this experience at the time. And I don't think you can do that with memoir. With memoir or biography, you are always got hindsight in there. And you always have somebody editorializing the experience. And I, the whole gamble of this novel, the whole balancing act, was trying to enter these, this head, this experience, trying not to... Um, trying not to slice through it and pop it open with hindsight um, and, and see what it felt like as a reader and for me as a writer to live in that bubble um, because I, I was curious um, where, you know, what questions would arise from that. Um, and they would be, to me, seemed like different questions than um, had been answered by other books. So. Uh, real quick, I'm just curious about audience and the people you speak to and how the interest and generally just continues for this particular people are fascinated by that period? hmm And do you have any thoughts on that, like how it has transformed over time, why it's still so relevant right now, but they're obviously possible and going on in the world right now? Yeah. Do you see that? Well, I think particularly for Americans, it's a part of our American myth, and I don't mean myth as in falsehood, but myth as in, you know, we went, helped or, you know, in a large part, liberated Europe from this um, immense evil. 
Um, but and, and so that's part of the story. But, but the thing that I think is really interesting right now is that the living memory of, of that period is, is fading. You know, my father's 79. He was a child. Um, so, you know, during, he was in 1945 when the war ended. He was uh, nine. Um, so in another 10, 15 years, like, it's going to be fully... I don't know, some people live to 100, but it'll be almost fully out of human human living memory. And I think that right now there's a bit of a battle going on between letting this become a pure myth and keeping it real. And I think that there's a lot of people, I mean, if... You can look at like Inglorious Bastards, which I think was a great movie, but it's it's you know the World War II is like kitsch in it, you know it's just kitsch and it's platform and stuff like that. It's not really real, um, and I think other people have done that in a more serious way. Um, whereas uh, I really wanted the questions, the the hardest questions, to stay alive. You know, what would you really do in that circumstance? And and would you be brave enough? And those kind of questions versus just assigning good, bad, evil, you know, um, roles to people and, and, and thinking of them in, in more absolutist terms. So I think people are interested because those who remember it know how defining it was for, I think, the culture of the world. And, um, and those who don't remember it but feel connected to it still want to understand it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.